So we finally arrive at our series on Revelation. Uh, when I told Jerry Wilkinson that I was going to preach, he said, you must be leaving because everybody preaches it on their way out. <laughs> and in a way, I, I get that. It's, it's a little bit uh, scary, and I've been promising for a while. I, I told you that I, I keep a spreadsheet of all of the Bible books and chapters that I touch in morning messages, and uh, Revelation was strangely absent. <laughs> and so I, I would like to walk through the book, um, but uh, a little bit of a disclaimer. My early exposure to Revelation, uh, some of you know, some of you do not. I, I did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, I was uh, um, raised by God-fearing parents, but church really wasn't part of our, our routine. And in the uh, early 70s, I, I rode a bus to Sunday school, and uh, a bunch of people at a little church in Richardson, Texas, just loved me into the kingdom of God. And because it was the early 70s, it was a time when a lot of books about Revelation were coming out. Uh, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, and Salem Kerbon did the uh, 666, and there were other books that were uh, designed to promote the, the idea of a rapture and a, uh, a tribulation and so forth. And then if you were around in the late 80s and through the mid-90s, there was another wave of it with uh, uh, the whole Left Behind series. And uh, the, 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 the theme or the, the storyline was kind of similar. The rapture would happen, driverless cars would run into fire hydrants, your wife would be cooking, she's gone, you're left behind. Flash forward to a scene where people are lining up to get the mark of the beast. The Antichrist is identified because you did the numerology in the Bible, and now it's going to be horrible. That's kind of what the storyline was. And, and, and many of you grew up with that, that thought that that's what Revelation was. It was this unfolding of God's plan. Rapture happens. People disappear. Tribulation comes. The problem is that's not really what Revelation is about. And the, the, the name of our series, Reclaiming Revelation, is with the idea that maybe we would uh, recapture the beauty and the power. Yes, He promises judgment. Yes, He is a God of justice who will not suffer for the sin that has uh, taken over the world. Yes, there is a plan for those who would claim Him as Savior. Yes, He takes sin seriously. All of that's in there. Oddly, the word rapture is not in there. The word antichrist is not in there. Uh, the, the idea of the millennial reign is, is not what Hollywood has made it to. So let's, let's, let's dive into the book and just see what we can find. Now, another disclaimer, I understand that some of you began your discipleship journey as a result of the fear that was induced when somebody did Revelation in a, in a spectacular way. 
And I will never believe that anyone's walk with Christ is compromised because of the clay feet of the messenger. I think that everybody who's ever come to Christ and, and later a preacher has been revealed to be a charlatan of some kind, God is a lot bigger than that. And whatever your take on revelation has been, it is not wasted, it is not blasphemous, it is a way that God has begun to speak to you about this incredible conclusion to the Bible that He decided that we would have. So that, that's kind of my approach. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. In a way, it's a culmination of all of the design patterns in the Hebrew Bible. He, he quotes the Old Testament frequently. It gives you, the reader, the commission to look at the reality in your world, your, your own set of circumstances, and then compare those to an extent with those in the first century, the late first century, the early second century. And, and begins to see that, that God has never forgotten His church. He's never allowed His church to be complacent. And what we will read in here, as one person said, is it's not about being raptured out of this world. It's about being a disciple in this world. And it was that in the first century. It was that throughout the, the centuries between the first and the 21st, and it is true today. So, it isn't what I thought it was. I thought it was all about the end times, and certainly it is. I thought it was all about Jesus with fire coming out of His eyes and dressed in, in white and zapping anybody that, quite frankly, I didn't like. <laughs> Because that's kind of the way we see God's judgment, right? It's, it's that the, the, the people that I don't like deserve God's judgment. But people I like, well, they're probably going to make it. <laughs> and so I, I, I began to realize that it's not exactly what I thought it might be. And what I always am afraid of, and, and maybe I would label myself a little bit of a rapture skeptic, that, uh, that, that God is going to unfold things the way He's going to unfold things. In Acts 1-7, the disciples asked Jesus, when, when is it that all this stuff is going to happen? And Jesus said, and I paraphrase, it's none of your business. <laughs> in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 24, He said, the Father knows the times. They, they are appointed they, they, they will unfold in His plan. And He said, not even the Son knows the timetable. So the people that, that uh, uh, design elaborate charts and timelines and prognostications and, and here's when the end of the world is going to happen. I don't know if any of you have seen the show Parks and Recreation, but one of my favorite episodes of that was when a guy reserved a park for the end of the world party. And they said, well, the park is reserved that day. You can't have it. He said, what about the next day? <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of the, the cartoonish way that people look at all of our predictions. 
And so what I'd like to do is to reclaim Revelation, to, to, to do it. Like I said, my, my Bible is relatively clean in Revelation, and most of you know how I treat a Bible. And so we're going to be walking through this together as I learn some things about this incredible book. already have, and I can't wait to, to sort of walk through it with you, but some of you are going to be disappointed. Some of you are going to not hear what you think you might hear, and you may hear some things that you would rather not hear. So let's read it differently. Yes, we will acknowledge that at the end there is justice. Yes, let's acknowledge that anybody who takes away from the words of the book is cursed. Yes, let's acknowledge that God takes sin seriously. But let's read this through the lens that I believe it was intended for the first century, and and I think where it really has application for us today, and that's through a lens of hope. So let's dive in. First of all, there are about four ways that people look at this. And this is uh, maybe kind of give you a a sense of where I want to go with it. There are people called preterists who say everything that happened in Revelation happened in the first century, and the, the warnings, the imagery, the symbolism, the, the, the beast, the, uh, Babylon was Rome, and, and everything was written to first century people about first century topics to the first century church. So Revelation is sort of a, a history book of, of the way things were. Historicists read it as a a sketch of the history of the church, beginning in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born and working all the way through the end of times, that it's it's a story of the church built on the covenant in the Old Testament, revealed in the new covenant in Christ, and, and as Christ uh, it works out the timetable, God works out the timetable as to when the world will end and when the curtain will come down, then that's what the whole book is about. Futurists or predictive futurists are sort of the ones who have controlled the narrative about the book of Revelation. Futurists believe that that everything in Revelation is in the future, or at least it was future from the time that John wrote it in A.D. 95-ish. And that, that everything that he wrote was, was the, describing the times then, and, and many of the symbols that you can see in Revelation, they, they have come to, to fruition. We, we recognize the, the things that have happened along the way, and, and they can line up with some of the things that are predicted in Revelation, just like so many of the prophecies of Christ line up with things that actually did happen. And so the, the futurist sees that that, that these things are, are, are predictable, they are identified, the symbols can be known, that we can take the, the symbols and we can relate them to world leaders or world, convi- uh, uh, world conditions. We can say this war goes with this and this leader goes with this, and we can do our charts and our graphs and our timelines. An idealist says, you know, Yes to all of the above. First century, about first century. 
future, absolutely. The, you read the end when it says the king is coming back. That, that is the absolute bedrock belief that drives us as followers of Christ. That resurrection is real. That God will wind up this, this world in the way he sees fit. But at the end, the king is coming. So we, we yes to the futurists. Yes to the historicist. Yes, yes, it is a description of the church, and, and it's written to churches. We'll get to that in just a minute, I hope, or a few minutes. It's written to churches, and so, so next week when, we, when, when I do the state of the church message, I'm going to spend time in Revelation 2 and 3 where the, the Spirit says to the churches, and I'm going to ask, what can Dunwoody Baptist Church learn from the admonitions to the churches? What, what is it that he has against us? And how do we look to the future in a way that is corrective, not like the churches of Revelation, none of which exist today? So it is a, a letter about the history of the church. And it is a a letter about the future, and it is a letter about all of the above, but the idealist says, says, let's look into this letter for the way things were the description, the way things are the description, the way things will be the description, and then we react accordingly. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to walk through some verses and make some observations, and uh, and we'll catch up. We'll we'll get into the symbolism. We'll get into the uh, the the demand to worship. Right now, Robert is listed to handle the part of Revelation that talks about worship, but he's got a bum leg, so I don't know how that's going to work out. John is the author, the the, the earthly author, and so Revelation, and it's not Revelations. There's just one. Uh, it, it is not the revelation of John, but when you see the very first line of the very first verse, it tells us this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Put a pin in that, that phrase, the things that must soon take place. A lot of times the Bible is written in a way where you can see a parenthesis, so to speak, that identifies the first part of a block of verses that are going to teach us something, and we'll see the close to that parenthesis in just a minute. So he made this known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now jump over to verse 9. I'm on a cheat a little bit. So after the, the, the prologue or the, or, or the first eight verses, John identifies himself, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that is in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. Now, we don't know if he was on the island of Patmos when he finished the revelation. We, we kind of know that John ended up at one time in the city of Ephesus, which is only about 50 miles from this, this island. Picture an Alcatraz for the Romans. 
uh, a prison colony that, uh, that, that for some had hard labor, for some uh, they, they, they had a, uh, more of a pastoral life. We don't know what was John's existence was. We know they got tired of him in Rome, and so they exiled him to this island. Or he may have been in Ephesus first. The, the, all of church history lines up with the, the thought that John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, spent their senior years in the city of Ephesus, which is, of course, today in modern-day Turkey. And so John is writing this, and, and, and he's trying to communicate what the Spirit has given him. And he says, here's how it, it showed up to me. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard uh, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. So back over to chapter 1, verse 2. So he bore witness to the Word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So, so the, the picture is that John is in a cave somewhere on this island. Uh, a rushing wind comes through, a blinding light, whatever it was. He knew it was the Spirit of the Lord. He heard the voice behind him. He turned around to see who it was. And the Scripture makes very clear that God gave this vision, a dream, so it's not crazy that, that, that the, the, the imagery that we see in Revelation is a little bit fantastic. Some people dismiss it uh, out of hand because the beasts and the dragons and the many heads. <laughs> what about if you talk about some of your dreams? <laughs> I mean, it is just dream imagery. It's, it's not meant to say, I looked out the window and I saw a dragon with all these heads. He saw this in a dream, in a vision. God gave it to him, and he gave it to him in a way that would last forever. I got I to gotta hurry. So in verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, and here's the close to the parentheses, for the time is near. So he says in, in, at the front, these things must soon take place. And now he says the time is near. Want to engage in a little holy speculation. What if, and one of our scholars who wrote one of the, the commentaries on this uh, uh, suggested a similar thing. What if, in 95 A.D., the church is reflecting back on the 60-plus years of church history. Jesus died in about 33. The church was born soon after. So if the church was born in 35 and John is writing in 95, then 60 years and throughout the history of the first century church, they expected Jesus to return any day. That, that was the way it was set up. He, he said he was caught up in the clouds. He, at the end, he said, I will be back. Lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. There was this thought that we would look to the east and, and through the golden gate in Jerusalem, here Jesus would come back. And the church lived with that expectation. 
And then a generation died off. Then another generation died off. And the stories are are given from one generation to the next. What if the disillusionment had begun to set in? What if they were now going, okay, I wonder if all of this was a dream? I wonder if this isn't really going to happen. I, uh, we're, we're, we're facing persecution from Rome. The, uh, we're, we're getting weary of doing good. What if the church was, was not so much under this intense persecution and, and standing against that persecution? What if, what if the main thing they were facing was complacency? And they were just getting tired of waiting. What if God said, I will send you a letter that will encourage you? I'll send you a letter that will speak in terms that you can't even imagine of what's really going on in the world, the spiritual forces that are going on, the good, the evil, the angels, the demons. I'm going to send you a letter that will blow your ever-loving mind. And I will send it in such a way that 300 years later, the people who decided what would be in the New Testament says, this is going to be the capstone book. This is going to be at the end. This is going to explain what's going to happen. This is going to encourage the church for the next 20 centuries. And you know what? It worked. (laughs) It worked. Because we as the church are still here. If the church had been disillusioned and and sort of given up and just sort of oozed back into Roman culture, we would never have the seven churches of the Revelation. We would certainly never have Paul's letters. We would would not have the the church that, that, that lived on past the first century, survived the Dark Ages, made it through all the world wars, the multiple languages. And the church of Jesus Christ today is alive and well. What if that's what he was trying to say when he said in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and, and he names them over in, in uh, verse 11, uh, seven churches, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thetyra, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all clustered around what we would today call Asia Minor, the, the, the western edge of Turkey today, kind of uh, along the Aegean Sea. Patmos is out there with Rhodes and Crete and uh, Mykonos and Santorini and all the other Greek islands. And so he's saying, this is the letter to those churches. Maybe they're discouraged. Let, let me send them a letter. Why those churches? Why not Corinth? Why not Rome? Why not Jerusalem? Well, maybe he was saying these are seven churches. He talks about seven a lot through this book. We, we think that's a number of perfection. That's, anytime we see that, he, he's saying that's the, that's the total thing. That's the mother load. And so he says, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's for sure what you need to highlight if you're in the 
habit of writing in your Bible. Because he's, he's going all the way back to the Old Testament. He's, he's making sure we know this is Yahweh. This is, this is the God of gods. This is the one who created. This is the one who sustained. This is the one who convicts. This is the one who protects, who guides, who sent a Savior in Jesus Christ. He says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. What does this sound like to you? You know the song we sing in here sometime, praise God from whom all blessings flow? It's a doxology. This, this is a, a, a blessing that he's speaking over the church. It's, a, it's sort of an interlude. He's, he said the, the vision has occurred, and then over in chapter uh, 1, verse 9, he's going to pick right up with that. But, but first, he wants to bless the churches. As a matter of fact, the, the first blessing that he, he talks about in, in chapter 1, verse 3, that's one of seven blessings that are pronounced on the church throughout the book of Revelation. Some, some might call those the, the Beatitudes of Revelation. And so he, he, he's encouraging the church. Maybe they're disillusioned. Maybe you're disillusioned. Receive encouragement as he, he speaks blessing over us. And then he says, from Jesus Christ, verse 5, faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Can't miss that. There's an assumption of the writer of Revelation. It is not people that are kicking the tires. It's not people that are thinking about it. It's not people who are going, I want to have it all. I want to have my own way. I want to have His way. He says, this is written to you who are covered by the blood of Christ because you have confessed your sins and you've cried out to Him. The firstborn of the death. He loves us. He's freed us. He's made us a kingdom priest. And verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. You may have noticed the, verse, the word amen in verse 6. Like any good preacher, it means absolutely nothing. He's going to keep going for a while. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those pierced, uh, those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. And then he, he, he wraps it back around to the beginning of the doxology. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are, of course, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, saying that it's all-inclusive from A to Z. The one who was, who is, who is to come. He's saying, this is the God we are talking about. And it, uh, uh, there's so, so much more that's, that's it's here. He he, he's, he's addressing the letter to the churches, but I, I'm going to come back to verse 8 in just a second. Verse 12, he, he begins to talk about the seven lampstands. Those are the churches. Next week, we'll talk about the churches. He describes the, the vision that he saw of Christ. His, his head was white. Daniel 7, 9 describes the ancient of days whose head was white. His feet were like burnished bronze. It's a little unclear what that means, but, but the idea is His majesty. In His right hand, He held the seven stars, the seven stars, the churches. He holds them in His right hand, His good hand. Sorry, lefties. He protects the church. He's going to fuss at it. He's got two chapters where he's going to say some pretty hard things to the churches. But he's holding the churches in his hand. 
the sharp two-edged sword. That's what he's going to use to, to let them know some things in the next couple of chapters. And verse 17, of course, John fell at his feet and said, don't fear, get up. I am the first and the last, Alpha, Omega, who was, who is, who is to come. We're, we're getting a picture here. The things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place, the, the mystery of the seven stars, the churches. I will speak those to the angels of the seven churches, the, the spirit of the church, I, the, 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 the leaders, the elders, the congregation. I will, I will speak words into the church that will encourage that will give life. Let me finish with this. The description of the one who delivered the letter, who was, who is, who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, it it sort of reminds me of a conversation that he had with Moses on the backside of the desert right before he established the first covenant, the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, the covenant of the Ten Commandments. As Beth Moore said, Moses was on his backside in the backside of the desert, and he had just about given up hope. Maybe we're that way. Maybe we're disillusioned like perhaps the churches were. Maybe we need a word from God. I don't think it's an accident that John is compared figuratively to Moses as Moses is in a desert somewhere and John is on a deserted island somewhere. And God speaks to them and He says, I haven't forgotten you. To the church, I haven't forgotten you. To the anxious, I haven't forgotten you. To the grieving, I haven't forgotten you. To the relationally damaged, the one who's been hurt by the church, I haven't forgotten you. I am the one who was, who is, who is to come. I am the Alpha and Omega, A to Z. I am the first and the last. I am the one who shed blood so that your sins could be forgiven. So as I read Revelation, <laughs> I'm going, how can you not respond to that? How could you leave this place and not do business with that God who is about to reveal a whole lot more in the next seven weeks? But right now, he says, you find yourself on your backside in the backside of the desert I haven't forgotten you. And this is who I am. This is what I bring to the table. This is what I promise the churches and all those who are in them. The question remains, are you in? Have you given yourself to this God? In a way that says, my journey of discipleship. Maybe it started by watching a scary movie that made me scared of hell. Maybe it started in a church service. Maybe it was in a revival. Maybe it was a conversation with my mom or my grandma. But this is the discipleship journey that we're on. Revelation is not so much about being raptured out of this world as it is being a disciple in this world.
Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this amazing conclusion to the Scripture. Thank you for what you're about in our world. Thank you that we have a picture of of how it's going to end up. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said at the end of the, the age, the sheep will be separated from the goats, the good from the evil, the just from the unjust. The people that have called you by name, Alpha, Omega, first, last, who was, who is, who is to come. God, it's my prayer that there would be not a single person who would leave here having not settled that. And God, if there's anybody here who has never received you as Savior, anybody watching on TV who is uncertain of their relationship with you, let this be the day, as the song said. Let this be the day that they have a conversation with me as a pastor or one of the other pastors or a friend or somebody at the Connection Corner. Let this be the day that that conversation happens where they say, I'm not sure that I need to know. I'm not sure that I know. I want to receive Jesus. I want to be part of this story. I want my discipleship journey to begin today. God, let this be the day. For the rest of us, I I pray your encouragement from this book. I pray that we would understand that you are speaking over us as a church in whatever disillusionment we might feel. Because you love us. Because you hold us in your right hand. So thank you, Father, for this gift of encouragement. I pray that we will understand it faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. If I described you, our Connection Corner is right over in the back. If you're a guest, we would love for you to go see Sarah and and get a nice gift for coming today. But more importantly than any of that, to start this conversation that says, I need to know that I am what Revelation describes as a, a dissident disciple living in this world, not simply waiting to be raptured out of it.